Welcome to Podcats. Welcome to this bonus mini episode of Podcats. Hi, welcome to Podcats. I'm Dan. And I'm EJ. We are back momentarily because there's been an important development in the Cats universe. Yes, uh, there has. So you know how Andrew Lloyd Webber is streaming his old musicals on YouTube um, and doing commentary over them? Like uh, every weekend or so. Yeah. So after after much demand, he finally did that for cats. Right. And right. You can imagine how how we felt. Elated. Elated. I actually got a targeted Facebook advertisement um, about it. Like he's been like a, a targeted ad, which was just, or maybe not a, not an advertisement, but like a tar- like a suggested post. Facebook suggested the post to me. And it was Andrew Lloyd Webber talking about how he was going to do a live commentary of the 1998 filmed stage musical version of Cats. How did Facebook know? Do you post? You don't post about Cats on Facebook, right? On Facebook, no. I mean, I'm I, once in a while I post something, but no, never about Cats. They just know everything. It's a little bit creepy. They know everything about all of us. I didn't get um, a suggested post on social media, but I did get approximately like. 15 text messages at the same time asking me if I had seen it, if we were going to talk about it on the podcast, if I was excited about it. And the answer was yes, yes, and yes. Yes. I knew right then and there that I was going to spend a significant amount of time watching this commentary and dissect every little bit of it. It's like two and a half hours long. It's super long. Yeah. Well, it's the whole length of the, of the musical plus a little bit more because he starts before the show starts. Yeah, he starts before the show starts and he gives a lot of context and background, but mostly it's just amusing to see how awkward he is with technology. Oh, yeah. Yeah, his daughter was like running it for him, running the tech for him. Yeah. He also, I guess the reason he did it was because his cat had just died. Right. Yeah, he did it in memory of his cat. His cat had died that week and he was like, okay, in honor of my cat who just got hit by a car and died, I will do a commentary on my famous musical about cats honestly it was even better than i expected uh for reasons that we'll talk about um yeah i will say that before yeah before we even get into it just in general having just watched two commentaries like the last bonus episode obviously was about tom hooper's commentary on the cats movie and then this commentary it was great it was phenomenal. I wouldn't say that it was that revelatory for us being cat scholars in terms of like backstory on the production or the history of the show. Like a lot of it was from his book. Um, and it and a lot of it was stuff that we discussed on previous episodes. Yeah. But for for one very important reason, it is really like I don't know if it's even still available on on YouTube, but if it is, it. sorry. I don't think it is actually. If it it's a must see if you can like pirate it and if you can't then it, this episode is a must listen um because we watched it for you and we're going to be discussing it in painstaking detail. Yeah, and it's this is really important like this is a very important moment I think in our history because he basically he confirms a lot of our opinions and a lot of our theories and Basically, like, cemented it. For me, I don't know how you feel. We haven't really talked about it. But it cemented him as a hero figure in this journey. Oh, it definitely. I mean, I never thought he was anything but a hero. 
um, in the cat's journey. Like he's the man that started it all, but for sure. Yeah. It's but like, I like him more than ever. And I like cats more than ever after watching this. Oh, you like cats more than ever. I think so. The, the, the original musical, the original stage show. Yeah. Why? Why? Because hearing it for me, it, he was, he came off as very charming for the most part. And like hearing him talk about how exciting and, um, it was to work with the original creative team and how much he respected them and how vulnerable they all felt and how much, um, how much they put themselves on the line to make this production happen. It was kind of, uh, beautiful for me. But he, I, I, I agree. But like, I think that he hammered home the point about how much he loved to work with the original creative team for one reason. And it's the main reason why I found the commentary. So entertaining. Okay. He, so so are you, do you want to just get to it now? Let's just get to it now. Okay. He spends the whole time shitting on the movie. Yes. The whole time. Yes. Yeah, he in, does. In very subtle and also very direct ways. Shockingly direct. Yeah, it got more and more direct as the commentary went on, I think. Yeah, by the time he gets to Buster for Jones, he sort of like gives up at any pretense of like discretion or like trying to not be a dick and he kind of just goes off for sure and he's bitchy about it he's really bitchy about it um <laughs> do you have in your notes like the first time that he starts talking about the movie i think it was during jellicle songs for jellicle cats he's uh during the can you sing at the same time in more than one key part of it more or less when in the movie there's a di there's like the weird disco beat and stuff yeah and so he's Angela Weber is listening to it, clearly really digging it. He clearly loves Cats. Like, he does not regret any part of writing that show. He loves no. the show. And he, like, and he says, oh, well, this is much closer to what I wrote than certain other productions. <laughs> right, 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 right. I didn't realize it was during that line. Yeah. Or it's, if it's not during that line, it's, like, during that 30 seconds of the song where it that where the movie does take liberties the first time that i have him sniping at the movie is during um victoria the white cat solo yes dance where he says it was meant to be a solo and always should be a solo yes which is for sure a snipe at the movie i mean yes absolutely a snipe at the movie because that's the only production in which it's not a solo i will say this also like as we will see and as we dissect this like a lot of his opinions, I think, of the movie are basically our opinions or my opinions. And it's like, I think he's totally spot on with most of them. Yeah, I agree. But this is one where I was like, okay, you just really hate the movie. Like, I don't think having Monka Strap in the White Cat solo really took away from it that much. Yeah, I agree. I've always actually kind of found it strange how much like cats purists talk about how iconic the white cat solo dance is <laughs> no, i guess i'm not a much of a dance scholar or dance person so i don't really understand it but i guess it is iconic i i don't really think of it as like like that iconic it's not iconic the same way that like mr mistopheles is or like memory is or yeah or, you know the makeup or the or the cat the logo of the cat's eyes glowing in the dark but apparently i mean like, and he talks about it in the commentary. He talks about how iconic it is. Yeah, and Francesca Hayward talks about it in the uh, movie feature. She talks about how she, that's the part that she watched over and over again when she was a kid and, like, pretended that she was Victoria. 
I, maybe it's just like a certain kind of person that like a dancey person. I don't know. It, look, it looks like, like this is my knowledge of dance. Like to me, I can tell that it looks very difficult. Like this is not something that I could do with my legs. The, the split stuff. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the control, like the lifting your leg up that high and then controlling it and all that stuff. It seems hard. Yeah, it seems it seems hard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It seems hard, but I wouldn't say it's like it doesn't even register as like one of my top five favorite moments of the musical or the movie. Not even one of your top five favorite dance moments. Not even one of my top five favorite dance moments, honestly. Fair. But anyway, Andrew Lloyd Webber. And okay, and I will also say that even before the movie starts, he says something about like this is the ult cats, like as it was meant to be viewed, the ultimate theatrical experience. Yeah, he's really bitchy about that. Like he's even hammering it home before he even starts. He's like, this is a theater thing. This was always meant to be a theater thing. That's where it works best. But that, I found that very strange because, I mean, he it's not like, the as we discussed in one of the previous episodes, like, this was in the works as a movie for, like, quite some time. Yeah, and he alludes to it also in the commentary. He does. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Also interesting. Um. And then he talks about it again with uh, the Gumby Cat song when he says that it's great to hear it without interpolations or silly things that stop the rhythm and flow of the music. Yep. He's going off. He also says that he he also talks about the original Jenny Anadots, which like the London version, which has the part with the mice, mm-hmm. uh, which again, Tom Hooper, as we all know, like is obsessed with the London version and went like all the ways in which he improved it for Broadway, Tom Hooper went back and then undid those improvements and then made it, um, you know, took it back to the like old London version, even though it was improved upon. And this was, that was another one where Andrew Weber says that he, he talks about how he rather wisely cut the mice out of Gumby cat for the American version. But the mice are in the American version. Um, but not, it's like a different, it's a different dance sequence. It's a different music. I think what he means is like the music, when the when the mice sing that stupid thing, that stupid like doodly oh. doodly up thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That dude. That's the part he's talking about. Yeah, that's the stupid part that he cut out. And also, the end is stupid, and he cut that out too for the American. He rewrote it and made it better. And then Tom Hooper put it back in. Yeah. Yeah, because he's a villain, and that's what he does. Is he makes things worse? Yes. So then, okay. So then we go on to Buzzer for Jones. Mm-hmm. And he says, Bustafer without interruptions as I wrote it. And then he goes on, I begged to have them removed. I did manage to get the worst removed. I can't begin to tell you how un-Elliot it all was in this song. This song is about wit, not coarse jokes. It's also about taking the song at the right speed. Did they speed it up in the movie? I don't remember if they sped it up or slow it down, but according to him, not only were the jokes uh, like off color and un Elliot and in bad taste, which I t- agree with all of that, mm-hmm. they took it at the wrong tempo. He certainly didn't hang around on seesaws, is what he says about Buster for Joe. Oh, I missed that line. <laughs> he certainly didn't hang around on seesaws. Yeah, and he talks about how he talks about what Buster Jones is supposed to be and how he like met one of those guys when he was younger. Yeah, basically it's sort of about this like very plummy, like upper crust 
like big sort of guy who has like this routine and just goes from club to club in London. And obviously James Corden's rendition is just a giant fat joke. Right. He really, really hated Buster for Jones. And it was very, I was very happy to hear about how, how much he hated it. Uh, Well, uh, you can imagine how happy I was because you know, I hate that part of the movie more than anything. Maybe not more than the British Mungo Jerry and Ripple teaser. I hate the British version of Mungo Jerry and Ripple teaser more. Really? Personally, yes. But Andrew Lloyd Webber does not. Yeah, he base he he alludes to it, but he says that he can't decide which one he likes better. But he does go mention that um, the American one has that cool session that's in seven eight. His beloved seven eight. His beloved seven eight. And I will point out that when I saw the revival on Broadway, uh, the twenty what was it twenty. 16 or something like that. That's right. I can't. Time in quarantine is like really uh, escaping me. Mm-hmm. My concept of time. But 2016 sounds about right. When I saw that revival, they had cut the 7-8 out, part out and made it into 4-4, which is like really, it would just kind of ruin the song. And so I think that might be why he mentioned that it's 7-8. Wait, can you, so for... The listeners at home who aren't well versed in music theory. Yeah. Can you can you unpack sort of the difference between the two? Sure. So, so uh you know in the context of the song? Yeah, sure. So as we all know, the American version, um, not the chorus, not the like Mungo Jerry and that's like four four normal. But then mm-hmm. when it has the uh I guess you would call them the verses, like when the family of the Sunday dinner. Exactly. And that's in seven, eight. You count it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Uh, uh, uh. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. One, two, three, four, one, two, three. And it's cool. It's in seven, eight. They're, they're like singing in seven, eight. They're dancing in seven, eight. Um, and then in the American version, they lengthened the bar so that it was just in four, four. And it was like, when the family appears for Sunday dinner, da, 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 ba, ba, da, ba. it was really sucked. Yeah, that must have pissed him off. It must have, I mean, it pissed me off. I was like sitting in the, I will say in general, God, I'm sorry if you are listening to this, anyone in that cast or in that, the cast was fine. Mostly I had a huge problem with the musical direction in that production. And I'm sorry if whoever that musical director is, is listening because they might be, but like. (laughs) It very well could be. It really could be, but like, oh, the God, that production was not. The band sounded terrible. All the choice, the tempos were wrong. All the choices were wrong. And I bet that Angela Weber felt that way too. Yeah, I mean, it seemed it seemed like he really took this commentary as an opportunity to sort of broadcast all of his grievances against the people who had like wronged him. Yes, yes. And I think that his cat, I don't even I mean, look, whatever, maybe his cat died. And I'm sorry, genuinely sorry to him if his cat did die last week. But I don't think that was the motivation for doing this commentary. I think that he had cats on the docket and was like, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and set the record straight on this one. And you can tell, you can tell in the commentary, like he's really trying to hold back for a while. And then he just like, can't hold back anymore. He can't hold Buster back. For Jones. I know he just loses it. It's like a cork came out. So yeah, he also says that the, the Jellicle ball doesn't work so well truncated. Yeah. Uh, yes. He said it only really w- works. Um, he said, and, he, and he also says that he wrote it to the choreographer. Oh, yeah, that's right. He does say that. He talks, uh, about, he talks so much, basically, about how much he loves the original team. Jillian Lynn and 
uh, Cameron McIntosh and Trevor Nunn and every, and even the people who like filmed the TV version of it. Yeah, he really has like very kind things to say about Julian Wynn. Yeah. But again, I think that's his way of shitting on Andy Blankenbuehler. Uh-huh. It's very possible. Because he really hammers at home, like how much but, he loves Julian Lynn. Well, he tells that story. Well, that's interesting because, yeah, he tells that story of of how the Schuberts wanted Michael Bennett to re-choreograph it for America. Right, yeah. Which I didn't know that. Did you know, did you know that? I did not know that, no. That's really That was really interesting for me. And then it flew him out to London. It seems like he's sort of make like... I don't know what Jillian Lynn and his relationship became after Cats, and I think they actually did have a fairly close working relationship after Cats, but, you know, it seems like at one point he was, like, listening to the Schubert's and considering their proposal to have it re-choreographed because, I guess, they were such a powerful organization. Um, and he had mortgaged his house to, like, re- like refinanced his house to put the money up for Cats and all that stuff, so I'm sure he was, like seeing the Schubert's come in and seeing dollar signs in his eyes. But, um, I, yeah, like he brought, they flew him over to think about the possibility of re choreographing it. And he, Michael Bennett apparently said to Jillian Lynn, like, you shouldn't change a thing. This is incredible and original and amazing. Yeah. That was a great story. Amazing. I was glad that he shared that. I was also glad that he shared that when Barbara Streisand came to see the show, she immediately asked for milk. Incredible. Incredible. She's a singer. Why is she asking for milk? I have no idea why she would ask for milk. The the there's nothing worse for the vocal cords than milk. Maybe because she was just watching a show about cats. I think she was just trying to be difficult. I think it's very possible she was trying to be difficult. But then she recorded the version of memory that is for many people like the only version of memory they've ever heard. Right. That's that's true. That's true. Um yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, she's, yeah, I think she probably was trying to be difficult. She has a mall in her basement. A mall? She has a mall in her basement. What does that mean? She has a mall in her basement. Like a shopping mall? A shopping mall in her basement. That's insane. It's like a recreation of a mall, and it's in her basement, and it has stores, and I think there are things that you can like buy in the stores. And um, there was this, there was like, like this, this one man play about it that somebody wrote uh, that was like off Broadway a couple of years ago about how they were like hired to be in Barbara Streisand's like store basement. But she's like known for that. I didn't know that. I don't know that much about her is the truth. I wish I knew more. <laughs> Speaking of um, divas and um, their basements, have you been watching at all patty lapone on twitter during this quarantine no tell me more well just it's just worth it's just worth following on her on twitter she's been posting these videos from her basement and she's insane in the best possible way also did you catch angela weber's knock at her in the commentary no i did not what did he say i might be reading into it but i do think he said something about elaine page being our original, he said, he was talking about Elaine Page originating the role of Grizabella, I think. And then he said something like, yes, Elaine Page, our original London Evita. But isn't that true? It's true, but I just think that it was his way of being like the real Evita. Didn't Andrew Lloyd Webber and Patti LuPone like settle their feud? Yes and no. 
Yes and no. What do you mean? The, the vibe I get is that she does not settle her feuds with anyone, truly. I don't think that she will ever truly settle her feud with Andrew Lloyd Webber or with Ben Close. I think that she can be in the same room as them. But, and like, I guess she sang a song from Sunset Boulevard at, a, at one of her concerts a few years ago. But like, you know, that, is, that, that will never be settled. But didn't they very publicly break bread or something? Yeah, maybe. But then I just don't think it will ever, ever truly be settled is, the, is, what, it, is what it seems like. What do you think um, Patti LuPone would have done with Rizabella? Hmm. I don't think she's right for it. Yeah, I don't either, I guess. I'm sure she thinks she's right. she would have been right for it. She's too much she's too much of a diva. She's too much of like I don't think she does like uh downtrodden very well. Yeah, she definitely doesn't do downtrodden very well. Um she doesn't have like a quiet presence at all. And this is my problem with her acting. Me and Dan talk a lot about like how what like our differing views on her acting. I think she can't act at all. And my, I I mean there are no shades in her acting. Like whatsoever, she can't like have a single quiet moment in her screen acting. <laughs> I don't think that's true. I think she did well on uh, on Hollywood. I think it was the worst show I've ever seen in my entire life, but I think she did a nice job. Oh, she was terrible in Hollywood. No, no, she was good. I bet our I bet our uh, listeners loved Hollywood, by the way. So that's a really alienating view that you just discussed. I mean, I watched the whole thing, but it was god awful. Explain. But I, we don't have to get. It's taking us way. It's taking us off track. But I think it was some of the worst writing perhaps I've ever witnessed on television. There is another dig that Andrew Lloyd Webber makes at the movie. Okay. Uh, that, which I don't think is a fair one. And for reasons that we've discussed um, about, he says, you can't impose too much of a story. It's just a fantastic theatrical experience in my view. Yes. And he mentions Tom Stoppard. Yes. He talks about um, the screenplay that existed in the past and sort of, uh, how the how Tom Stoppard would have introduced McCavity. Right. I think. Well, he mentions the opening shot of Tom Stoppard's script, which I think he did actually praise. He thought it was a cool idea. But then he said that ultimately there were some clever ideas that had, that there were clever ideas in there, but it doesn't really have a story. It shouldn't really have one. The opening shot being like the traffic jam that McCavity caused. The traffic jam that... Was it that or was it old, old Deuteronomy was like lit in the middle of the road or something <laughs> and causing a traffic jam, but then somehow McCavity caused it? Is that right? Old Deuteronomy was just running across the middle of the road. Or like tied up in the middle of the road? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to make the argument that Cats should be adapted into a movie, which Andrew Lloyd Webber knew perfectly well for years that it was going to be and say that it can't have a story. You know, <laughs> well, I think that's why it ultimately wasn't made, but right, it was because Android Weber was insisting on the songs being in the same order as they are in the show. Basically, he like he. I mean, I think that he played around a lot. It sounds like from the commentary that he played a lot around a lot with the show, rewriting it for the stage, yeah. like with the different order of the songs and what works and what doesn't. But ultimately, once he got the thing that did work and that made it billions of dollars he he wasn't going to budge on that when it came to adapting it for the screen but i also don't feel like cats doesn't have a story that's true but the story isn't the thing that you go for no but the story isn't the thing that you go for with any broadway show 
Mm, I don't think that's true. I think that at Sweeney Todd, you go for the story. You don't go for the story. You go for the story. You don't go because you want to get immersed into like the deep inner life of Sweeney Todd or. I think Sondheim shows you generally go for the story. You don't go to Guys and Dolls for the story. That's not Sondheim. You don't go to, you don't go to, I don't know, bring it on the musical. I do think, yeah, like the traditionally shows have bad stories, right? Like the old school shows have bad stories and they kind of start to get better with uh, like at a certain point. And then the like ultimate storytelling show is like a song. I I mean, that's why I think Cats gets a bad rap because like, of course you don't go for the story, but you don't go for it. Right. It's like you think about what's, what was on Broadway, the original musical, like the musical review or the Follies or whatever, where it's like barely a story, if any story at all. That's kind of like what Cats is. Yeah. It's just, he calls it a fantastic theatrical experience. And he also says Cats is about joy, which I love because I don't think it's about joy. I think it's about being, I think it's about being as weird as you possibly can and crawling around on the stage, pretending you can be a cat. But I appreciated the fact that he, sort of tried to give a vocabulary to what Cats is supposed to be about. Right. I like, you know, yeah. And, and I liked that he um, was so into the idea of the leg warmers that the costume designer had. He basically said that the leg warmers is what made it work. Yeah. Yeah, that was very strange that he said that. Because it's obvious, like, that's not, it's obviously not true. Right. He was like, he was basically, basically said, like, it wasn't working. Like, he weren't, like... You couldn't, you could tell that they're not cats, but they're not humans. And it was weird. And then with the leg warmers, it was like an obvious nod to them being human. And then, and then as an audience member, you're like, oh, they're obviously human. And now I can accept it or something. But I also think that's a dig at the movie because the movie tries to have it both ways. Yeah, I do think it was a dig at the movie. Um, And he also blames the eroticism of cats on Julian Lynn. Yeah, but he doesn't exactly blame her. No, he likes it. He loves yeah, it. Yeah, he loves it. He but confirms they, that the Jellicle Ball is supposed to be an orgy in the yes. commentary. Yes, he does. I appreciated that. Yeah, he does confirm it. And he says that it was all Jillian's idea and that like he wouldn't even repeat some of the phrases that she used to describe what the dancer should be doing there. Yeah, I wish he had because I think that that is the key to knowing what, which of the cats fucked and which of the cats didn't fuck. I know. And also which of the cast members did and didn't in the original London production with the creative team. Speaking of which, he mentions that. I know. He talks about how the set designer, John Napier, and Trevor Nunn, I believe. Yeah. And and he all married cats. Right. That's right. And he doesn't address if she if he wrote the Jemima part. For Sarah Brightman. Do you remember how we were discussing that? Yeah, I do remember that. But he says it was always very, very special for me because Sarah Brightman sang it. That's right. That's right. And that she was that he originally knew her as a dancer and didn't even realize she could sing. Yeah, which again, I mean, I I don't know. Like, does it, it's it's kind of completely out of nowhere that Jemima sings that verse. Yes, and I think it must have been because he was in love with Sarah Brightman. It must have been. It must have been. Because think about it. I mean, wouldn't you think that Victoria would sing? If Victoria is supposed to be like the symbol, the symbol of innocence, like in contrast with Grisabella, like wouldn't Victoria oh, that's, sing that's, first? That's a theory. We don't know that. 
Well, it's an interpretation, but I think it's a correct interpretation because Victoria did ultimately sing that verse in uh, in the movie. Yeah, but the movie is a different thing. That was we. That was one of the emails we got at podcasts one two three at gmail dot com. Was that theory that um, Victoria was the ultimate symbol of, in, of innocence? Oh, really? Am I quoting one of our? You are. I I, I believe. I think you you agreed with the email, but I think I believe you are quoting one of our. Listen um, emails. Beloved listeners, emails. Oh well, shout out to whoever that listener was. But I don't. Oh, also, while we're on the subject, I want to acknowledge the one that called me out on um, saying all the cats were homeless when they're in fact not homeless. Okay, go ahead. Um, so thank you for calling out. You're right. The cats are not. I did last time. I was talking about how Jennifer Hudson says that Grizabella was homeless and how funny I thought that was because they're all homeless. You're right. They're not all necessarily homeless. Mungo Jerry and like Mungo, like um, often in the poems, they're referred to as like the family when the family appears for Sunday dinner, stuff like that, like where it implies there is a family um, that is somewhat looking, ca- taking care of these cats. And maybe some of them are indoor outdoor cats who have a home and also hang out in the alleyway. But also, I think the majority of them are homeless and do live in the junkyard. Wait, explain the contents of the email because not everybody has access to podcasts one two three at gmail.com. Uh, I have to pull it up. You don't need to read the whole email. Well, I mean you can if you want to, but um okay. you should explain what we're referring to. So this is from Thomas. Um and Thomas uh he says that Jenny Annie Dots is clearly a house cat. Um yes, you're right. He says, Rum Tum Tugger must have a home. If you put me in a house, I would much prefer a flat. Uh, but I don't think that means he has a home. That just it means doesn't mean he has a home. It doesn't mean he has a home. All it means is that it's that he's uh, elusive, basically. It's metaphorical. Yeah. Um, Gus is the theater cat, which I interpret. Okay, so this is where we agree, and where and the, this is the theory that I had, and I think episode one, and that you disagreed with, but Andrew Lloyd Webber confirms. So Thomas writes, Gus is a theater cat, which I interpret. Sorry, I I lost it. He writes, Gus is a theater cat, which I interpret to be much the same as a bodega cat. He isn't homeless. He simply lives at the theater rather than at someone's house. And that was what I thought, which is that like Skimbleshanks is not, does not have a job at the railway. He's simply, and Gus is not acting on stage. It's just kind of in their heads. It's actually just that they're the cats that hang out on the trains. And Andrew Lloyd Webber mentions that the theater cat that theaters used to have cats apparently there was such a thing as theater cats and because of health code you don't see that anymore i was really hoping you wouldn't bring that up and i will tell you why okay at first when andrew lloyd Webber said that i was like shit dan was right uh-huh. gus his theory about gus the theater cat is true but then i thought about it why do you think cats had theater cats Peter's had cats. Um, to kill mice. Exactly. And is killing mice a job? Killing mice is a job, but killing mice is not acting. But does that or does that not mean that the cats had jobs? No, I don't think that means that the cats have jobs. Like lots of people have cats just like because they don't want mice around. <laughs> well, it's I feel like an asshole. Cats have a job. The, the cats are not. <laughs> getting paid for this work. 
I was going to be like, what about bodega cats? But then I remembered that bodega cats are not compensated for their work. No, no, no cats are compensated for their work. No cats are compensated for their work. It's true. Okay. Well then I, I, what is the expression? Like I'm eating crow. Okay. Fair enough. So I have anyway, on my face. But anyway, Thomas um, goes on to, he has a few, he has some good uh, textual evidence. Mr. Mistopheles, if you look for a knife of the fork and you think it was nearly misplaced, you've seen it one moment, then it's gone, but you'll find it next week lying out on the lawn. Again, like it doesn't mean he has a house, but it does kind of, it does kind of mean that he's going in and out of a house. And Indoor, outdoor. Silver, silverware. Mm-hmm. and Shanks is a railway cat. Um, yeah, again, that's the same thing where he just kind of hangs out on the train or at the train station. I don't think that means he has a home. Mungo Jerry and Rebel Teaser, indoor, outdoor. They are wreaking havoc in the house. Um, although in the movie, it does. It seems like they do not have a house. They're just sneaking into houses. Correct. So that and, could be the case. And in the movie, I also want to add that Monkey Strap very prominently wears a property of London collar. Yes. Um, which would imply that he is homeless. Yes, that's right. Uh, because he is the property of the city. He's like an alley cat. Right. Right. And then he also mentions that Buster Jones is really fat to be a stray cat. But like, like the movie has him eating out of the trash. So he could be really fat. Yeah. And just because he's wearing a tuxedo, I mean, tuxedo cats. Right. And, <laughs> all, right. and also like people feed street cats. Yeah, I've seen fat street cats. They're still homeless. Like Demi. Demi was a street cat that was getting fat. She, she was getting fat because she was pregnant. Yeah, this is a cat that Dan and his girlfriend were thinking of adopting that my son still asks about every Wait, time he talks to Dan. Like right before it shut down, there was a cat living on our block who we almost adopted. And what did you name her? We did name her Demeter. <laughs> Demi for short. But you didn't adopt her? No, and someone else did, and, apparent, and it turned out she was pregnant. Because because she was fat. That's one of the reasons she was getting fat. So I are you saying that you agree with the email that was? I'm the- saying the email. Look, he's right that not all the cats are homeless, but I think I still think the majority of them are homeless, and the ones who aren't, besides Jenny Annie Dots, are indoor outdoor. I guess I'm on board with that. Um. He also asked, while we're on the subject of his email, I usually I just respond to emails and <laughs> I usually just write in a response, but now we're responding on air. But he writes, do we have any thoughts of the cutting out of Growl Tiger's Last Stand and the Battle of Peaks and the Pollicles? And Angela Weber addresses Peaks and Pollicles in the commentary and basically says that he knows, he, this is how I took it, that he knows it's bad, but for some reason it gets a lot of laughs in the theater and so they always kept it in. Why did you interpret it that way? He basically says, like, yeah, me and Cam... I don't know if... Remember if it was Cameron McIntosh or Trevor Nunn, but he was like, yeah, we were... Um, like, during opening night or one of the first previews or whatever, they were, like... Um, dre- they, like, kind of had a feeling that that number was really bad, and they were, like, dreading sitting through it because they thought the, the audience was just going to lose all interest, and that apparently the audience, like laughed hysterically and really loved it and it was a proof that you just never know what might work and what doesn't and that's why peaks and pollicles is still in the show i truly don't understand what anybody would find funny about that it's not funny at all it's not what what is the joke i don't understand i think the joke is that dogs are dumb 
What? The joke is that the cat's making fun of dogs. That's the joke? Ba- yeah, the, that's basically the joke. It's like a bunch of cats dressing up and like making fun of dogs, I think. What exactly do they say about dogs? Well, they tell the story of the Battle of the Peaks and the Pollicles, but they like dress up as dogs in this really funny, like silly way. Like they basically put on trash costumes, costumes made of trash. And then the great rumpus cat comes in and breaks it up. Right. The cat saves the day like and saves the dumb, dumb dogs from fighting each other. Oh, I, I have no words for how stupid that is. It's a terrible number. It's not it's it shouldn't be in the show, but that was it seemed like he justified it by saying, "Well, the audience likes it." Yeah, I I have no problem with the Peaks and the Pollicles not being in the movie at all or Growl Tiger's Growl Tiger's last stand is sort of in the movie. Peaks and Pollicles is cut out of some shows too, I think. Oh, it is? Yeah. And also, well, Growl Tiger's last stand is definitely cut out of some of the is of of a lot of the productions. Um, but Isn't it racist? <laughs> Well, yeah, there's there is the racist part of it that for sure is cut out of every feature production. But also, yeah, in the movie, they do kind of have Growl Tigers. They have more of Growl Tigers last stand than I ever would have put into the movie. Yeah, I agree. It, it's completely random. It doesn't make any sense in the context of the movie. No. Although, as we have discussed, we both like kind of like the barge part. Yeah, the barge parts are our favorite parts. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> oh man um, is is there anything else that uh that you have in your notes about not much i i will i do think that it was it was you know what, what when he was talking about the original london production and how the set was re- how the whole theater revolved mm-hmm. and that seems really cool to me like how basically i think it, i could i didn't really understand what he was saying i guess like I couldn't, he made it sound like the, the audience themselves were like revolving, but I don't know if it was that the stage was revolving or the audience was, was, was revolving, but during the overture, the entire time, not only were the cat's eyes coming at you and were cats running to the audience, but your whole, but you were started the overture facing the back of the set. And then by the time the overture was over, you had made a complete revolution and you were facing the front of the set. And so when that overture ends, you're all of a sudden like facing the set frontwards. And that sounded awesome. Yeah, that rocks. Why did they not do that in America? Well, the Winter Garden doesn't rotate. Just fucking make it rotate. It's a huge theater. You can't rotate that theater. Just make it, just change it around. But how cool would it be to have a revival of Cats in which we had a rotating theater? It would rock. I, yeah, I was thinking, space. when he was talking about it, I was thinking that it was sort of like, this isn't going to fall on deaf ears with you because you've never been to Disney World, but there's this thing called Carousel of Progress that's this rotating theater. It's like literally a carousel and it takes you in front of different scenes like throughout the 20th century uh-huh. of animatronics. That's kind of what I was, it's a great place to take a nap. Um, it's really soothing. (laughs) That's what I was thinking he was talking about. And I would love to take a nap in a revolving theater. Well, yeah. And and you know what? Like, it just makes me think. So Cats is like, one of the cool things about Cats is that it is immersive theater, right? The cats are in the audience and you feel like you're part of it. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the reasons it was so successful in New York was that even though it was at the Winter Garden, which is one of the largest Broadway theaters, it still seemed somewhat intimate because of the immersive nature of it. 
But it made me think about um, that production of Sweeney Todd that we saw a few years ago, where that really small theater where that uh, uh, where you're eating meat pies and the audience was all around you and everything. Imagine mm-hmm. cats in like a off Broadway sized theater, or it could even be a small Broadway house, but like some kind of space where the audience where the where the audience was rotating and where it was like even more immersive. It could be really cool. It would rock, but also the novelty would kind of. I mean, what's the point of having like a rotating theater after the end of the overture, you know? Well, the way Angela Weber described it, it was it like basically made the show. But like how? Like throughout the rest of the show? Well, I think they were so, well, I don't know about the rest of the show, but I think that it got you off on the right foot. I think that like they were so nervous opening up this show. Like when it finally came down to crunch time, I think they, I think they had a blast creating it. And they were all inspired and it was like a fun time. But then when it came to crunch time of having people in the audience, they were nervous and like they were convinced it was going to fail. And I do think that the rotating thing was like, it just automatically got the audience off on the right foot of like, whoa, what's happening? This is kind of cool. Yeah, I wish I wish that we could see it in a rotating theater. That would be badass. Um, but besides that, I mean, the, the the basic conclusion was he hated the movie. He was not involved with the production very much. The part like when when he did try to get involved, he was basically shunned by Tom Hooper and Hooper. I think it sounds like Hooper was basically like, listen, this is my thing. I love your show, but like, let me do it my way. Yeah, that was the vibe I got for sure. And to Angela Weber's credit, he had a working relationship with Valerie Elliott, who was convinced that pretty much everything Andrew was doing was in the spirit of her dead husband. Yeah, and it and like Tom Hooper didn't have that relationship with Valerie. No, so like, why didn't he respect Andrew Lloyd Webber? And also, it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like, why wouldn't you respect him more? Right. This is his show. It's like I don't. Yeah, I don't really get it. It's like Andrew. This is and you get it. You're getting it from the source, right? Like Andrew Lloyd Webber got it from Valerie. And got got the seal of approval all the way through the whole production. And then Hooper like was just kind of like, ah, I'm just going to make my version of it. I'm not even going to go back to the T.S. Eliot stuff. I'm just going to make it based on what I know as an eight-year-old of your production, of what you created. But also to Andrew Lloyd credits, to Andrew Lloyd Webber's credit, I mean, I think you're right that he was you know, very subtly calling and sometimes not so subtly calling out Tom Hooper throughout the commentary, but he doesn't ever directly call him out. No, he does. He never mentions the movie. He never says movie. He just says like, unlike other productions, stuff like that. Yeah. I wonder why just to be classy. I think like, it's, what he thinks is classy. Yeah. I think it's what he thinks is, it's, it's a little bit unclear. I mean, I look, we, we, it, it just confirms what we know. Like we had a feeling this was how he felt because of what we heard about what he said at the premiere of the movie, which was basically like, listen, everyone, like, this is Hooper's movie. This is not mine. <laughs> um, like, this is Tom's film. This is not my thing. Which basically we took to mean, like, he doesn't like it. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not surprising, but it was good to see that so heartily confirmed. Right. And it was good to see that a lot of his opinions, especially the musical opinions, were the same as how I feel about it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think, I do think it, that a lot of it is just him being classy and him, like he showed, like he sh- showed up to the premiere. I think he knew he was going to hate the movie, but he showed up like a gentleman. Like he doesn't want to be that petty. 
But he was petty. He was so petty, but <laughs> he doesn't want to. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a British thing or maybe it's just a celebrity thing or like I don't I don't really know what to, to make of it. It would have for sure. It would have been headline news in a different way had he called them out by name. He's he might maybe he signed like a contract or like a I don't know what is the term there's a there's a type of um there, it's there's a type of like contract that you have to sign after you like leave a company or like leave an employer where you can't like condemn them publicly in any like a non an NDA it's not an NDA but it's like it, it's like a non-condemnation that's not the term for it like if there are any lawyers who listen to this show like they're probably screaming right now but that but maybe he signed like one of those you think he signed something that said like listen we're going to make this movie and you're going to get this much money from it but here but you but you can't um say anything bad about us yeah yeah I mean, it's fairly common for like low level employers to make employees sign that after like like a project is done. But Uh I mean, obviously, Andrew Lloyd Webber has more money than God. So you wouldn't think he would have to sign shit. But like, who knows? Yeah, no one's no one's coming after him. Even Universal Studios probably couldn't come after him. It also makes me wonder whether other members of the cast have signed similar paperwork. And whether mm. that would bode poorly, hint, hint, for... <laughs> for season two. For future seasons of this podcast. Yeah. Well, if anyone, as always, if anyone has any inside information about it, um, just let us know. Podcasts123 at gmail.com. I literally, I live for inside information about the making of cats. Oh, me too. I, I'm dying for it. It's all I care about. It's all I want to know. And listen, you can tell, like, we, uh, we have one professional journalist here. I am not, but we, but we do, um, we will keep it off the record if you do request it. Yeah, we will respect off the record. We respect off the record. We respect it, but we would much prefer on. We would much prefer on, but we respect off. And we will gladly keep you anonymous. We just want the tea. For us. Please. Because it's quarantine and we're going crazy. I'm desperate. I'm desperate. Please tell me more about the making of cats. All right. Well, should we should we call it? Do you think? I think so. Well, it has been once again a wild ride. Thank you so much for being with us on this journey and uh, and for putting up with us. <laughs> thanks for putting yeah thanks for putting up with us thank you for sharing this with us we wouldn't be here without you um we love hearing from you as always so write in and we will be back i'm sure soon because the the news the world might be shut down right now but the world of cats is not shut down so world of cats never sleeps it never sleeps so and we love doing this so we're just looking for any possible excuse that we can that's right Uh, to keep it going so go ahead and send us tips thanks for being with us thanks for joining us we'll see you next time on podcast